We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about 28 Days Later, the 2002 film directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello. <laughs> and Alex Galleros. Hi. I am also joined by some of our patrons as we are recording this episode live, like via live stream, to patrons who are watching and listening and chatting along along with us right now, which is always fun. Um, so, okay, before we dive into 28 Days Later, a uh, couple quick business things. Reminder for patrons that our episode on Saving Private Ryan is available over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon for people that want to prepare for the next episode, it will be on The Sixth Sense as we're in Halloween horror scary movie mode. Got to talk about The Sixth Sense at one point. It's going to be now. It's going to be fun. And we're coupling that with a patron exclusive episode this month on The Village. So M. Night Shyamalan, double feature, The Village, as I've said many times, the first half of it is one of my favorite movies ever. Second half is something else. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about it, revisit uh, all of that, and, and go with go through it all with you guys. Um, and make sure you guys don't miss next episode on Sixth Sense because we also have a fun little announcement that we will be sharing. So, ooh, ooh. teased hashtag teased. Uh, okay, now let's get into Twenty Eight Days Later. So. Watching this movie again, I realized that I don't think I had actually finished watching this movie for a first time, mm. even though I thought I had, because most of the second half of this movie, I didn't remember. And I think some of the issues that I had with it this time are the reason I didn't finish watching it back in high school or whenever it was, which is the the digital video <laughs> aesthetic uh, <laughs> is very hard for me to get over. It's just it's a it's a personal problem. And I know that. Uh, and so I was and like, I don't love zombie movies. I don't love horror movies. So I wasn't like super compelled during this movie, but weirdly afterward, first of all, the, the, the events of the second half are more interesting and not where I was expecting it to go. Um, so that was an interesting turn that kept it fresh. And even though I didn't love the viewing experience this time, I found myself retroactively liking it like i came out of the movie being like ugh, and now i think back and i was like that was cool and like i want to be like oh i hated the visuals 
but they were kind of cool. So I'm struggling with admitting that I don't hate this, um, but I'm not quite prepared to do that yet. The struggle is real for Michael. So we have a whole Michael complex happening here around this movie. Um, But Brian, you have a a different uh, reaction to this movie as does probably everyone because I have Michael issues. But Brian, do you want to tell, tell us about 28 Days Later? Yeah, I, I love this movie. Um, I I would say it's one of my favorite uh, horror movies. Um, this and Get Out and only a couple others are sort of like anything post-1990. Because my favorite horror movies are from like way back. Um, and uh, and yeah, I just I really love Danny Boyle, as I talked about on the podcast before. I just love his directing the way that he can just put together some combination of shots and music and editing and you know obviously him and his team um and that just makes me like really like evokes a a visceral kind of response from me um the ending of this movie just for me i'm just like so like just like emotionally stirred by that whole that building score that's going for like minutes and minutes in that in that whole finale um and uh, and I think there's a really interesting thematic thing in this movie, which I want to get into, uh, which is, you know, for me, it's just like if you're going to make a horror movie, make it about something, not just like there are really fun slasher horror movies or whatever, but they don't try to be about anything. And I like movies like this that I think are are, are saying something. Um, and uh, and, you know, the other interesting thing with this movie was it was like the first movie after Danny Boyle and Ewan McGregor had kind of broken up because there was this like political stuff about the beach and Ewan McGregor thought he was going to be in it. And then he wasn't. And then, Mm. uh, and then it became that they just sort of like stopped talking for quite a while. But then when I saw this movie, I was like, you know what? I'm glad I don't know these actors. Obviously now you watch this movie and you're like, it's Killian Murphy. It's Naomi Harris. It's Brendan Gleeson. But at the time, uh, especially, you know, in in America, um, I was just like, Ooh, I like the, the combination. We can talk about how this movie is shot, which, you know, for better, for worse, but the combination of the way it's shot and, using sort of lesser known actors gives it this really like documentary kind of feel where it feels like you, it, it, you know, the, the this movie is attempting to make you feel like you are watching something real and not like, look at our movie that we are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think I, I appreciated that about it where I was like, Oh, okay. I actually like that. Ewan McGregor is not in this movie as opposed to other Danny Boyle movies where I'm like, Oh man, that could have been Ewan McGregor if they were still talking. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so those, those are my overall um, first thoughts. It's just a movie that I, that I really love um, watching. And every time I watch it, it still just kind of gives me those, gives me those vibes I want. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it was really fun seeing this cast and recognizing everyone, like you're saying, but realizing that at the time, these must have been extremely unknown to most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I always appreciate when you can, as you're saying, find really good unknown actors that are great. Right. I think that it's also funny because uh, I think time wise, it's like two to four years before um Scarecrow and Money Penny and Mad Eye Moody, right? Like they would all, they're all right on the <laughs> okay. cusp of becoming like known to the to everyone, and not just to like you know probably just Brit- people who know British actors. Yeah, I also when IMDb people in this realized that Brendan Gleeson is Dominal Gleeson's father <laughs> and that blew my mind uh-huh. and everyone else seems to just like know it but where like, do you think that redheaded young man came yeah. like where do you think uh, I mean, how could these two Brits other... with the same last name be related <laughs> how could this be <laughs> <sighs> I don't know that blew my mind anyway all right Alex let's hear your thoughts 
Sure. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember when I saw this movie. It was definitely yeah back in high school or close to when it came out, but like watching it at home on you know, rental or something. And I, I remember I remember vaguely that it was shot in this kind of documentary style way. And then but I didn't remember that it was like literally like like consumer grade digital video camera. Oh, yes. And so when I started playing it uh, last week on HBO Max, I was like, oh, no, this is one of those like old transfers of a movie. Like, like this is from HBO's like library, like when they were streaming movies, not streaming, but like showing movies in like the 1990s and they didn't like get a new copy of like the like HD version <laughs> of this movie. So then I went to iTunes and I was like, I'm going to rent the like official like Apple version <laughs> and and like see it like at least like, you know, and I know it's, it's, it's shot digitally, but I'll see it like with the actual transfer, the actual HD transfer. And I was like, wait, no, this is just how it looks. <laughs> and then it kept going. How much like, money oh. did you spend, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> Four dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I unnecessarily spent four dollars because I forgot how this movie he flew to was. the last blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was jarring to realize this is shot on the same kind of camera that I was making like home movies with in high school, <laughs> basically, yeah. uh, like a Canon XL one. I looked it up. Um, yeah. Which is crazy, and and it's interesting standard because definition for like no widescreen like this is <laughs> yeah like it's like, like the widescreen is zoomed in into the square right. like ratio like yeah a, the tiny corner of your iPhone has more pixels in it than <laughs> that, that <laughs> which Tell us like how you really feel Michael <laughs> <laughs> but like you know it was a choice obviously it was a conscious choice they didn't have to shoot the movie this way and uh, it's interesting because it's unlike Blair Witch Project which is presenting itself as found footage as like a D a mini DV tape that was found. This is not that this is shot and has evocative framing and uh, ways of shooting scenes. It is not trying to pretend to be someone's camera that was carried along for a journey. And it's just a really interesting combination, interesting choice. And over time it did feel like the, the aesthetic artistic reasons for it did start to feel more and more right as the film went on. It, it gave it this kind of like old indie seventies movie vibe or like kind of a punk grindhouse, like some kids just made this movie and like went to Sundance with it. Uh, and, and it's just, it was interesting to like see that uh, aesthetic pasted onto what is obviously a bigger production. You know, they have they shut down London or parts of London for periods of time to get these shots. Uh, so this is not a small movie, but the aesthetic makes it feel like a small movie. Um, anyway, so that was a lot of a lot of what was on my mind when it first began was just all that, like recalibrating my brain and being like, oh, this is what it is. It's not just like shaky cam. It is my home video camera from high school is what this movie shot on. Um, past the aesthetics, I really liked it. I had also kind of forgotten the main plot. Uh, I think I just remembered images and sequences, but not really how it all fit together. And uh, I could I could feel the Alex Garlandness of, of it this time, you know, some of the deeper themes and people speaking aloud, thought provoking sentiments. And I and I really liked that in a zombie movie. And I really appreciated where the movie went and how it ended. And so, yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot and it's, it's a really interesting experience to watch this movie. Yeah. Nice. All right. 
Trisha, what about you? Yeah, uh, just want to say, because I got curious about it, uh, the budget for this movie was $8 million, which is very modest, yeah, but is the, not considered not then and wouldn't be considered now even low budget. Right. Like, it is, it is a small budget, but for the amount that they did, it's actually, it actually cost more than I thought it did. Like, I assume they spent most of it on locations. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and probably on the shooting schedule too, which you get the feeling probably took a while because they went to a lot of different places. And um, anyway, but uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the shoestring budget that it's designed to look like, which I think is really interesting to your point, Alex. Like it's, I think there are interesting creative reasons about, the choices being made here and it does add a lot of texture to the story um and vibes as you were pointing out brian um but yeah it's uh it didn't need to look this cheap is what i'm saying mm-hmm. like they had <laughs> they had some money um they had more money than i thought they had uh but yeah anyway i, I saw this back in the day probably in college or something uh because I, of train spotting like i love train spotting danny boyle um and and his work generally. And so I really wanted to check this out, even though I was very scared to do so. Um, and I have not seen it since then. So I was prepared to be very upset and disturbed this time around. Um, and there were, you know, <laughs> not short sections of it that I watched through my fingers. Um, but I did really like it. Like, I liked it more than I thought I would upon rewatch. Um, it's got this nice, simple story to it. Uh, you know, I think... Somebody mentioned it was I think it was a patron that mentioned Apocalypse Now um, and just the how that uh, both Danny Boyle and Alex Garland have said it's one of their favorite movies. And we've talked about the simplicity of that plot. Um, and that is clearly showing it here where it's like we got to get from there to there, basically, as the plot becomes, um, you know, in a very hostile world that is not unlike a war zone. Um And so, yeah, and then there's a finale with a bunch of soldiers in, Mm -hmm. like, essentially a military installation. So yeah, and he has to, he has to, like, ninja his way to, like, get the bad guy. Like, yeah, I didn't make that connection. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty apocalypse now-ish in some ways. So, yeah, I really liked it. I really liked it this time around, uh, which kind of surprised me as well. Um, And I do think there's some interesting themes going on here that I'm not sure about, or I don't think are like clear or clean necessarily, but definitely thought provoking um, when you walk away from the movie. And I agree with you, Brian, it definitely feels like it is about something. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that in itself makes it sort of an elevated zombie horror movie. Um, And it definitely was like, we can get into this, but influential, important, um, and very successful, uh, for being the movie that it was like, it made plenty of money. Like, I think it's, I think I read, it was like one of the most, like in terms of its budget versus how much it made one of the most successful horror movies ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it made so, 82 million on an 82 million. million. Yeah. It's a <laughs> yeah. good return. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think, you know, and I'm sure it did a lot for Alex Garland's career too. Like, he was not a screenwriter before this. He was a novelist um, and then, you know, ventured into screenwriting at this point. And so I think that that all in itself is really fascinating and and worth talking about the movie alone for all of those reasons. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. The, the 
wave of zombie movies that came after this. And I think you it know, was a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The, the Dawn of the Dead remake there. being the the sort of, you know, let's remake a movie, but with fast zombies because 20 days later. Yeah. Yeah. The, right. the fast zombie era. Yeah. yeah. And I think I read that Alex Garland was inspired by Resident Evil, also the video game and mm-hmm. like that. So those both of those forces, Resident Evil 2, the most terrifying game <laughs> of all time that I associate with Big Willie style, the Will Smith album because i had to listen to that while playing it to not freak out i mean that sounds <laughs> that sounds like more disturbing and like detrimental yeah. <laughs> it's, it's your mental health it was, it was delightful <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about um well yeah and so the so the themes in this movie because i agree that they're i think why the second half made me re-engage is because it did feel like it was shifting gears at the midpoint from, you know, this kind of simple escape from the post-apocalyptic, you know, we're trying to get from point A to point B. By the midpoint, they get to a point B, but then, you know, the horror sort of flips and the things that are dangerous aren't the zombies, it's the humans. And so it's like, oh, okay, movie, you're, I see where you're going to talk about some things. Um, so I did find all that really interesting. And so, yeah, maybe we can just talk about themes and different themes that we we all found in this or extracted or how they were expressed that we think are, are interesting in this movie. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the big, the sort of big obvious one, right? I mean, there's simple themes like Selena learning that other people are a good thing, right? Like that's sort of just like, <laughs> that's like theme 101, right? Or like character arc 101, I should say, of like character mm-hmm. starts this way, turns this way. And, and I think that's very valuable. And, and I, and I like, um, yeah, has more than a heartbeat. Um, I like the sort of the change that she goes through. Um, even if it does sort of feel a little forced along the way, where she goes from just like a murdering psychopath to like kiss on the cheek. Um, but because love, because love, Brian, because it's love yeah. that happens to her. I buy that kiss on the uh, cheek. I think they're feeling they're feeling extra good. They got to the grocery store. They got to go on a shopping <laughs> spree. They're like they had like good food. Like. Your brain chemistry is so happy. Suddenly she turns into a 14-year-old on a date. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but ultimately where she starts and where she ends up, I I find find, um, compelling and and interesting and and satisfying, I should say. Um, But then the the big thing I always thought was so interesting about this movie is that Jim has to effectively become an infected to win um and that's always stuck with me and made me go like well what is that saying you know and and yeah as you pointed out michael there's the very obvious switch of what's more dangerous people just infected with rage versus people who are choosing to to engage in the behavior that the soldiers engage in right and and saying like oh yeah you can just be a crazy murder machine but like that's not as that's not as scary as somebody who says like i am choosing to do you know harm on to others um so it's this interesting triptych of like spectrum almost of of like how good someone is right so at one end you have like frank and hannah who are just the the thematic like people there's that conversation right because they have each other it doesn't matter that the world is over they have each other and that's all that matters right and then in the middle you have people infected with rage like just trying to kill everyone and then beyond them on the other like the evilist side of the spectrum you have the soldiers people who are choosing to to do these horrible things right so it's almost like jim having to become 
an infected is like him saying like i'm at least going one notch down from the from these people because i'm trying to save the good in the world right because i'm trying to save the good in the world uh and if that means i'd rather you know i'd rather become an infected than become one of the soldiers right because because he is given that opportunity he's given that choice right but of mm. course he doesn't want to do that so i think i mean i just find the ending where he has come down from the ceiling and everything just like i said earlier just incredibly stirring emotionally and just like really fun and exciting to watch and like i said the music there is just insane um but i also think that like that's the interesting thematic thing that it's wrestling with is like when given the choice between being 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 one of these affected or being one of these soldiers like it's actually better to to be the thing that again on that spectrum is is further down than the than the just people who are being just wantonly awful to each other This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. So since I am not a huge horror buff, shall we say, uh, but Brian is more so than I anyway, Brian is here to tell you about some of the things you can find on Mubi this month. Brian? Well, first of all, I think this month we have to call it Mubi. So I I don't know how you type that, but we'll give you the exact letters at the end um but yeah i love every october just like watching a bunch of horror movies whether it's discovering some weird obscure thing i've heard of or never heard of or re-watching some of the classics and movie has a little bit of everything going on this month so they have some lesser known movies like tucker and dale versus evil rubber good night mommy but then some of the all 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 time classics like the original night of the living dead they're coming for you barbara and and when a stranger calls, why haven't you checked the children? All of which are either out now or will be out later this month. And here's Michael to tell you how to get access to Mubi. Amazing. Yes, you can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay. Fortunately, we weren't able to add a bunch of O's for the October uh, moviness of it. <laughs> you can try it. See what happens. Try and see what happens. But don't. Use M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thank you to Movie for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, I, I, I like that interpretation. Uh, I think it's messy though. Um, mainly because I was trying to dive into Jim's character arc this time a little bit, and he doesn't really start off with a super clear thesis, right? He kind of starts off as just an everyman without a clear, like, worldview. Um, other than, you know, we get his impressions of, like, oh, I think they're good people, and she's like, well, I would leave them behind immediately, and he's like, well, I wouldn't. Um, and so there's this sense of like basic decency, like I am not like, I am a normal human who likes other people that are good, I guess, and would rather be in like a tiny community than on my own. But that's not a super clear thesis when it comes to the thematic conversation about rage, mm-hmm. right? There's this idea, the the name of the virus is rage. And which is corny, this, by the way. Like we can, we which can just put is that like, out there. I was like, <laughs> really? Do we what? not have? Rage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's this. I like, as you're saying, like perhaps just an eagerness to harm, if you want to put it that way, or like 
active sort of, um, you know, I don't know, I guess it's just like sadism or, or hate. Um, there's that kind of conversation is happening on the ideological level when it comes to the construction of the world, but it's not really happening within Jim. Like it's, it's very interesting to me that there's, there's kind of not a strong engagement in like what is, what is Jim going through in his personal transformation? Mm. Um, and it's like Jim's decision to become an infected, which the movie is clearly communicating to us in he's covered in blood. He's like shirtless and running around and he's like snarling. Right. Snar- yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like kills that guy in the worst. <laughs> <laughs> You haven't seen Game of Thrones. You haven't been desensitized. Yeah. yeah. You I haven't seen, that, like, the actual skull implode on screen. I just yeah. want to talk about, though, like, the, the Blade Runner, like, thumbs through the eyeballs uh, is the is my least, probably my least favorite actual movie death. Like, I just, I just like, why? 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 Do we need it? Do we yeah. need it? It seems like we don't. Um, but anyway, but the movie is, is clearly framing him that way, right? It's, like, a very clear communication from the movie. He is being framed in the same way that the infected are. But since he doesn't have a clear thesis about the infected at the beginning, it's hard to know where he goes on his journey. And the only sort of interesting interlude on the way where he really encounters an infected himself personally, um, we know that, you know, he he's not the one who kills Mark. Selena does that. He's very shocked by it, but he doesn't judge her for it. He asks about it, but then, eh. And then he has to kill that kid, which is rough. But when he walks out of there, he's like, I've accepted this part of my life. And then suddenly he just goes like crazy mode Mm -hmm. by the end of it. And like, this is what I'm doing now to defend the people that I like um, because they're good to me. They're like my community. It just is, I think, pretty messy about what that means to him and like where he sort of finds himself um, or like believes by the end, I guess, about who he is. And, you know, there's that interesting conversation where the captain asks him, like, if you're alive now, you surely have killed somebody. So who did you kill? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, I killed a kid. And he's like, well, you had to. That was like self-defense. Um, and then he kind of uses that as like, okay, so we're the same now. Right. Um, and I will mm. tell you my evil plans for these women because I'm evil. Um, and and I'm, I'm an evil, evil man and a soldier. Um, and, you know, he's slightly surprised, I guess, when Jim refuses to go along with it. But again, the movie is not putting those pieces together for us about, so what does Jim think about his actions when he killed that kid? So what does Jim, does Jim really, he doesn't seem to even consider for one second that the soldiers might be right. Maybe they should stay there. Maybe like there's a way to reason with them or like do something else. Like he just seems like, oh, immediately, no, you're going to hurt the people that I care about. So absolutely not. Goodbye. Um, there's again the movie the script isn't doing a ton of thematic work once that decision is made and it's unclear what that decision means for the character in terms of the arc so i think it's all very interesting and on a visceral level i'm like yeah jim mess him up get him (laughs) be a zombie (laughs) be a zombie kill every kill absolutely everybody uh (laughs) now that you've befriended that other zombie that's we kind of like care about for that's the good zombie when you shot the shade he gave you a thumbs up and then (laughs) (laughs) i got this 
Um, but yeah, anyway, I just think it's a, I just think it's a little messy. I'll, I'll like I said, very interesting. Yeah, it'd be a good time to talk about the alternate endings of this movie. Um, oh yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, clearly show that they weren't entirely sure what they were doing either. Um, but Michael right. and Alex, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say uh, off Trisha before I ramble again. <laughs> no, I, I think there's a, a good conversation about character motivations that can go off of that, but we can come back to that in a minute. Um, so the also I forgot um, Chris Eccleston was also three years from becoming the ninth doctor. So and add that to the list of people who are about to like take off um, in their careers. So, you know, the first of all, I love the ending ending of this movie. Um, it's one of my favorite sort of dramatic question answered slash not answered um where do you think they saw us this time i've just always loved that as an ending of the movie um Mm -hmm. where it's like oh we don't need to actually know whether they're about to get rescued by planes because we know they're okay like we know the the you know the infected are starving out we know they have each other and like that you know so it's sort of like the before sunset ending where the dramatic question is answered like as late as possible um And uh, but then in terms of the endings that were considered for this movie and one was shot, one was not um, one is the uh, the simple alternate ending of Jim dies. So they so um, uh, Selena and Hannah rush him to a to a hospital. They try to operate on him. They try to fix him. They can't. And then the ending is the same ending, but with only the two of them instead of the three of them. Um, And I think, you know, with what you're saying, Trisha, about the messiness, it's certainly not. The ending is not sort of earned by being placed, you know, having hints placed along the way where by the ending you're like, ah, look at all that theme that happened. Right. But I do think that there is something to Jim right off the bat saying I wouldn't leave behind Frank and Hannah um, if they slowed us down because that's not what I believe in. Right. So the ending of the movie is him doing whatever he needs to do to get back to that status quo place of now the three of us can be together because because these are the people I care about. We are we are good. Um, so I will do whatever horrible things I need to do to these people's eyeballs um, in order to get us to this place where I, where I sort of believe is the, is the right place to be. Um, so I think Jim dying is actually like thematically messier and worse because it's just sort of like, okay, you, I guess you sacrificed yourself for Selena and Hannah, but like the whole point was, everyone's going to be happier if we're all together. Right. So I think that Jim surviving makes more sense there. Um, and then the rat, I don't know if I agree with that, but okay. You think, you, you think it's better. It would be better for him to die. I think it would be a little thematically neater because it would like, uh, square up with sort of the cost of rage and hate. Sure. Death, yeah. That's a good point. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like by becoming an infected, you chose death for yourself essentially in order to give Hannah and Selena each other and that community, the community that they can have together. Yeah. That's it. That's, um, I think that would be a little cleaner actually for me. Definitely. So that brings us to the radical alternate ending as they call it, um, which weirdly they were trying to do during post-production, which I don't understand because it would involve, reshooting half the movie um like I, don't think, I don't think you can in editing um but basically the idea is frank gets infected when he gets infected they knock him out and kidnap him um or not kidnap him but like sort of tie him up uh and then they have him just sort of with them uh in some place where they meet a guy. I don't remember the details. There's a place, there's a guy. Uh, the guy explains to them that if they do a full blood transfusion on Frank, then all of the <laughs> blood will be gone and uh, the infected blood will be gone and and then it'll be okay, which so there is a cure. Rich, r- right off, right <laughs> off the bat, Alex Garland's like, 
are one of them is like this is how it doesn't make any sense right if a drop of blood in your eye can then how are you getting all of the infected right. blood out of somebody so they're like so it didn't work but the idea would be that jim um jim finds out he has the right blood type and then he actually sacrifices himself uh for frank to survive and for the for the other three of them, Frank, Selena, and Hannah to be together. So that's kind of a combination of both the things we're talking about, right? Which is Jim yeah. sacrificing himself. Um, and then also that sort of him sacrificing himself, but for this greater good, this, this sort of community thing that he believes in that he sort of makes his, that's his one thesis really in the first act is, yeah. is I, I, I wouldn't abandon them, you know? Um, so I think it's interesting. I think it's, you know, anytime a movie has radically different alternate endings, you're like, well, I guess you didn't really know what story you were telling. Yeah. Um, so right. which which, you know, gives credence to this movie being messy because they were still kind of figuring it out as they went along. So I like right. the ending that we have, um, but it would be interesting to to see what they would do if they sort of could start over, you know, and make the movie that like they had like thought through, put through this process of figuring out all these endings and then made the movie they wanted. Yeah. In some ways, the aesthetic of the movie helps me feel at peace with any messiness because it feels almost sure. of a piece, you know, like you you don't expect the like punk rock grindhouse uh, lo-fi movie to be like a pristine Hollywood production that like ties everything up in a bow. Right. I kind of expect some randomness and some rough around the edges. This doesn't all fit into a picture perfect box this is going to be a lot of stuff thrown at you maybe thought provoking maybe it doesn't add up to one perfect thought but it's there to like shock and provoke um and and so the ending in that way does feel right in a way to me because it's just i don't know if this means anything but it is uh provoking it's provoking that yeah. our hero is now essentially uh not infected but acting as if he has rage um and i think the other thematic stuff that i get from that second half of the movie is once again i don't know what it i can't put into a sentence or like a thesis but i find it interesting to explore just the kind of pathology of an all male society and um, just what <laughs> what uh, humans become in kind of like a mono gendered, especially all male environments uh, over time. And especially if there's like no hope of any other kind of uh, society, <laughs> um, it's just it's a very depressing, despairing, pathological state. And I think a lot of, you know, the, the kind of har the harmony and balance uh, of the middle of the movie is this little like microcosm of a balanced society. There's a child, there's, there's women, there's men, like it's, it's, there's a, some kind of an ecosystem that is balanced. And then you go to this all male military space and it is like a, something is just like wrong and off from the start. And so once again, I don't know what it all means in the bigger picture, but we do have a thing called rage is the infection rage is usually associated with masculinity and kind of like a male pathology and so i think it is, there's something interesting happening there <laughs> but once again i i couldn't sum it up into like a lesson uh but i but i like that the movie is at least provoking and prodding and playing in that space but male rage harnessed to defend helpless women good <laughs> right that right, right. Fine. <laughs> yeah once again that's why i can't sum it up into anything coherent because right. <laughs> i don't i don't know that it is actually saying any one thing right just a lot of a lot of these ideas are just being played with and yeah once yeah. again just the movie provokes in a way that feels Definitely. right yeah. for it's like 
70s punk aesthetic. Totally. So I think some of that messiness for me also plays out in the character motivations. And -hmm. I think this is, uh, I've talked about on our Get Out episode, for example, I love Get Out's protagonist because it's a smart person that does smart things that I feel like I would do in that situation. And I feel like this movie has a lot of people doing things that don't make any sense. And that's like a barrier to me. I think it still um, plugs in because kind of like you're saying, Alex, there's thought provoking theme things that may be motivated and come out of it. But there's just these moments where it's like, well, do you want to take the safe long way around or do you want to drive through, <laughs> through the, the tunnel, tunnel right. and over <laughs> cars and like, bodies? Like the dad and... makes that choice. Right. Like the dad with the daughter. Right. Is Who's like... been so careful and <laughs> yeah. like has this like defense thing set up. And then like and then the, the tire gets popped and he's like, man, amazing. If you like jumped over a pile of cars <laughs> <laughs> in your taxi. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so th- there are just like a few moments like that where it it doesn't even feel. I guess it kind of feels like the movie's having them do it just because the movie needs it to happen. But it's it's almost messier than that. And the moment that you brought up Trisha of when Killian Murphy uh, has to murder the infected child person is we. First of all, it's dumb that he's just going to walk inside this thing yeah, that's, alone. That's one of my most like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. The movie is telling you in every way, just stay put. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's no reason to do that. Uh, and then when he like leaves, as you were kind of alluding to Trisha, we don't really see how it's uh, affected him mm. in like a detailed way like obviously he's not you know skipping and and whistling like he's not happy that he just had to do this thing but we don't get like a a deeper understanding of that and so there's a few moments throughout where it feels like characters make some weird decisions uh that are is frustrating for me as a viewer and feel like those horror movie things of like why did you go in that room? You didn't need right. to go in that room. No one needs to go in that room. The obvious thing is to not go in that room. What are you doing? <laughs> I have trouble with that. But I think I, that's also why I like the Naomi Harris character, because I feel like she makes the smartest mm-hmm. decisions. Pragmatic, yeah. Everybody. yeah. Big time. I feel like those moments make this movie, like it, it's like uh, teetering on this line between A movie and B movie. Mm. Where it's got these kind mm. of A movie thematics and then just kind of like B movie aesthetics and B movie uh, like character choices. <laughs> or it's just like, yeah, we're going to do the stupid thing because like that's what we want to do right now as a movie. and It's going to be fun. Like we're just going to do it. We're going to drive through this tunnel for no reason uh, to have a really cool tunnel. Sequence. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the thing is that like I agree with you, but also I like the things that happen as a result of those, you know, so like the the scene with the kid. I love that scene for two reasons, one of which is the look on his face when uh, Killing Murphy's face when he says hello is just like the most hopeless. Like he just like he is like <laughs> with one word just expressing like Ugh. I, I hate this. I hate everything. And then the fact that the kid sort of like drops in the back of frame and then runs like every, a lot of the the sort of infected. It's like you get you get this brief little flash before they show up, you know, like them running at the window um, in the scene where, where Mark gets infected early on. Um, so I like the actual 
scenes themselves, but I agree with everything you're saying about like, okay, but what did that actually mean? How did that affect him? You know, what, um, and I always, I thought the kid says, I hate you, which uh, he doesn't. He does. Well, he does, but it, not on purpose. So basically all of the, um, uh, I watched it with subtitles on and I was like, did he just say, I hate right, you? Right. Like he just said words. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, he's infected with rage. Right. Uh, yeah. That's what I thought. The, the idea um, <laughs> is that all of their dialogue, all the, um, the effect dialogue is like human speech that has been like manipulated. And for whatever reason, that one just got through where it then wasn't. It, I, I think it wasn't even that it wasn't manipulated. It was ma- manipulated in a way where it actually sounds like I hate you. So they, it wasn't on purpose. Mm-hmm. It was just supposed to be, growling garbles or whatever and then it turned into uh, that or at least that's what they said maybe they decided later it was a bad idea and they're <laughs> pretending that they didn't make that choice but anyway that is their explanation of why one of the infected suddenly talks it's like a post-production mistake mm-hmm. yeah um, the sound mix is a little all over the place so i could see that thing yeah well yeah and, and real quick to uh, before we you know kind of get into lessons but um alex was talking about the a movie b movie thing and i think this movie is such an interesting example of those choices, right? Where it's like you have obviously the low resolution, but then the high shutter speed. So at times this movie looks really, it looks like gladiator or something, right? Where everything looks really kind of like it's moving in this very smooth way, even though everything is very like poor resolution and the sound mixing is sometimes messy, but sometimes the sound mixing is the one thing that saves it from feeling like it is a student film. It's like, oh, no, this is a movie that was made by people who make movies. Um, and then that goes all the way down to what you were saying, Alex, like even just kind of this, the decision making sometimes is like sometimes we're doing this and sometimes we're doing this. Um, so it feels like this interesting hybrid, uh, exactly what you were saying, Alex, of of sometimes it feels very Hollywoody, and then sometimes it feels very like punk rock uh indie kind of thing and it's sort of it's sort of trying to find the marriage between those two different aesthetics because there is there's a class of like just genre indie b movie where there's not really an expectation of the things we expect from good movies like cinematography or or hollywood movies where it's like it's like no we are here for like pure genre thrills or pure genre just like uh, provocation and so we're not really here for like plots or like realistic characters. We're here for these other things. And I think, yeah, this movie, like we've been saying, is kind of dipping its toes into that space of like not really caring about the Hollywood things for sequences or moments at a mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Speaking of the character motivations, though, I do think Selena is really interesting because she kind of hangs a lantern on some of those things at the beginning where she's like, Oh, do you have plans, Mark? Like, are you making plans? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not Mark, Jim, are you making plans? Like it's useless to have plans. Don't even think about having plans. And she even hangs a lantern. I'm like, Oh, we're not going to fall in love kind of thing. Or like, is that thing you're Mm -hmm. hoping for? Give it up. Um, Which would mean more if that didn't exactly then happen. (laughs) Um, There are other relate kinds of relationships and trust. I just want to say that there are other (laughs) other ways that people can like bond and respect each other. Uh, Anyway. Um, Anyway. Um, But yeah, I think it's I think the one thing that's super interesting to me about Selena, though, um, in addition to Naomi Naomi Harris's amazing performance throughout all of this. She's Mm -hmm. so good. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's great. But we don't we don't ever really find out her backstory. Like, we don't know much about Jim. Um, I thought to myself that the scene where we go meet his parents is doing so much work to make us like Jim. Yeah, Yeah. but 
we don't know anything about Jim. There's no reason for us to like him other than he's introduced to us as our protagonist. Um, and, but when we go see that he was so beloved by his parents, like his parents left a note for him. Um, and without presumably any hope that he would ever find it conveniently, he does, but they just like with endless love, we left you sleeping and now we're sleeping with you. And there's those photos of him in the house. That scene is doing so much heavy lifting to make us like Jim. If Jim had had a worse relationship with his parents, if Jim had been estranged from his parents, if Jim had even been like maybe a normal dude who like moved to the city and didn't see them that much or something, um, it would be totally different, but you get the sense that he's their pride and joy. They adore him, right? They were probably visiting him in the hospital every day until they couldn't anymore. Uh, that scene is just really carrying the backstory for Jim. We even get Mark's backstory. He had parents. He had a sister. Mm. They wanted to buy their way out of the thing. Then he gets killed immediately. But we don't really hear anything about Selena or why she like has the the hardened, tough motivation that she has. And I'm not saying that we need it. I think we kind of don't. I like the cleanness yeah. of not knowing um, how she became this sort of person with very uh, her armor on, very strong. Um, but I do think it's interesting that she then becomes the person because she has a clear thesis, right? We didn't even know where it came from um, necessarily. But I think it's interesting. She then becomes the person who kind of walks Jim through this world. Um, and again, is doing a lot of expositional work of like, Hey, the before doesn't matter anymore. You got to stay in the now and stay here. And also the future doesn't necessarily matter. And I think as an audience member, we trust that kind of care, kind of character immediately. And we're willing to get on the wavelength of whatever she tells us. If she gives us the rules, don't go anywhere outside. Don't go anywhere, like, if you alone or whatever, you know, at night. Um, and then also don't make plans, right? And kill an infected the minute that you see them. Whatever rules she tells us, we buy because she seems like the smartest, most capable person in this world. And we don't need to know how she got that way. She almost is this mentor figure. Um, and it is smart to kind of lean into that archetype as being someone that Jim then like can trust and becomes attached to. Yeah, which is why it's like, just do what she says and everything will be fine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, she literally tells him like, stay here. Don't go into that shack full of dead people. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he does. Like, but cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Cool. Well, yeah. So why don't we move into lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from 28 Days Later. Uh, quick reminder for everyone. Next episode will be on The Sixth Sense. Um, yeah. I was going to say something, but realized that <laughs> Period. might. Period. <laughs> and that's all. It's like maybe maybe people haven't seen it. So maybe there are people that okay, don't know spoilers yeah. about it. So, okay. Um, if you, you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. Indeed. The kid sees dead people. Oh, yeah. Brian. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so lessons from 28 Days Later. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. I think uh, this movie is a great example of a sequence you need in your post-apocalyptic survival movie, which is the sequence of joy and laughter and people being human, because that's why we're going to care for the rest of the movie. And I think I, I think there's movies that are just so committed to uh, the dour depression and despair of a post-apocalyptic environment that forget to give you enough of that humanity that you you do start to just shut down and almost it's like you might as well die like like it's probably better to die at this point than to like try to keep surviving because what are you surviving for and i think it's really important that before too long a movie like this gives you that reason for wanting to survive so i think even in, in this movie early on when they're walking through the city and she gives that great speech about no plans. I'm always thinking if I was in the situation, I'm like, okay, let's find like a lot of pills and booze and just do what my parents did and <laughs> get the hell out of here. Cause why am I surviving in this world? There's no hope at all. And I think you really need, yeah, you need that sequence in the middle where they go to the grocery store and they have their like lovely picnic mm. and there's wild horses and there's the, yeah, the dumb, you know, teenage kiss. Like that really <laughs> is important for me to care about this family moving forward and what they're fighting for and why it's worth trying to get to the place they're trying to get to, et cetera. Um, so I think it's just a good, good reminder that no matter how bleak your movie is, uh, if you want me to care all the way through the ending for these survivors in this post plot post-apocalyptic landscape you got to give me that joy of being human somewhere in this in this movie yeah yeah that horse moment was quite a moment where it was like, <laughs> they're a family i think they're doing just fine like oh i get it movie yeah. i see what you're saying uh but yeah no they're really pretty horses they are pretty they are. Pretty horses yeah, this movie has a lot of moments that are supposed to feel like the moments in this movie that are supposed to feel the most profound often feel the the weakest, you know, which is unfortunate, uh, like infected with what rage or the kiss or whatever, like some of those moments, which I think Alex Garland thought like this is this is the moment, right? It's like, no, the, the movie is good in spite of those moments. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I, th I think it's a good point that you're making, Alex, of like, give us joy so there's something to hope for. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. I was in the same boat of like, I feel like Killian Murphy's parents probably had the right idea <laughs> given the situation. <laughs> well, and I think like in that joy being expressed, you know, I think when it works the best, it's not in the on the nose. Yeah, they're a family or the kiss way. But it's it's like the excitement of a full grocery store and like the childlike joy of filling up a shopping cart, because that is like the most amazing thing in this context. Um, that's what's really fun to see in a post-apocalyptic movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so a little bit actually of I Am Legend, but let's talk about I Am Legend in the village. Yeah. You guys remind me because I feel like that's another great example of the first half mm. of that movie. It's amazing. Right. Anyway. You talked about wanting to do a lessons from the screenplay video about I am legend in the village where the first half is a great movie. And then the second half is like, whoops. Yeah. I think there's a lot of lessons to pull from that. Also fast zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think this is maybe not a movie that you would pick to look at structure. But I, I noticed this time around when I was um, 
mainly because I had to pause it a bunch because I was doing other things in the house. Uh, but I was pausing it and, you know, at some the like act breaks and major plot points and everything. And they're right on the button in terms of time. Like this movie has really clear signposts on the different act breaks. Like Selena like hacks Mark to death. And I like paused it and I was like, okay, I'm going to take a break. But I looked and I was like 30 minutes. Here we are. Um, <laughs> And we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Like there's this this moment of like, oh, the new world is this and it is absolutely brutal. These are the rules of it. The people you just met that you think are your friends will kill you in an instant. Um, and this movie is just good. Like you could very easily chart it. It's, it's well structured. Um, you know, you get to the midpoint when they arrive at the, the garrison, it totally shifts the story in a new direction. As we've pointed out, the crisis is really clear. Like the, that all is lost moment where he's standing there and he's definitely going to get murdered. Um, and there's no hope for the women. It seems like, and like, it just, it, it, it has this really neat and clean structure. Um, and it's a, it's a well-written movie for that reason. Like, Anyway, it's just a really basic lesson uh, that it's sometimes good to go back and and back to the basics of that um, as you watch because it, it helps you in your analysis as you're charting like the movements of the different thing. And, and honestly, Selena killing Mark um, as a break into two is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. um, it reminded me a little, Michael, of your video on Moonrise Kingdom where you were talking about killing the dog. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, a dog gets killed in that movie for those that haven't seen Moon <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom. Well, it's otherwise man. a very lovely yeah. film. <laughs> yeah. um, but a, a dog does get killed in that movie, right? Basically right there. Um, and it signals the stakes, right? It's like the, the movie is heading in this new direction, but you need to have that clear break into two that not just like shifts the story, but really impacts the characters with and teaches the audience this is what act two is now right and these are the stakes of the world one wrong move and this is what happens to you um so i do think like a lot of those moments are very clear and smart and also the the nuance of the way that everything unfolds i was thinking about how frank gets infected um which is convenient and <laughs> Like the drop into the eyeball. It's like, yeah, well, you didn't need to go talk to that bird. <laughs> yeah, um, go right. stand directly. It's another there. moment of just like, stop doing don't things. Don't talk to that bird. Like, just right. don't do things, um, then you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you wandering and kicking? And yeah. if, Think about this. If, if uh, Jim had killed Frank, because they're like, Jim, kill him right now, kill him right now. Do you think that uh, Hannah would get over it very quickly? Like, mm. But they didn't have, they didn't make Jim do it. Right. Jim's about to do it. And then the soldiers come up and they kill him. Right. Um, and so I think, again, the way the nuance of those choices plays out also is like the perfect, like the perfect beat, the next story beat that moves the story along. Right. Um, it's really well written. Also tack onto that, that I really like the pacing of this movie where yeah. we get from yeah. like, mm -hmm. we meet Selena and Mark to like, oh, we'll go find your parents tomorrow. Cut to they're at their house cut to oh mark's gone <laughs> cut to hey there's frank and hannah like it's just like boom 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 but then there's still plenty of time for downtime uh for them to just kind of have a moment have a conversation but one choice i really like there is they see frank and hannah's window and then they go into the building and then they stop on the stairs and they have kind of a quiet moment before they have to then run up the stairs but you could have structured that where it's like this sequence is done 
let's have a quiet moment. Oh, now we see the window, you know, where like movies that sort of feel like the quiet mm-hmm. moments are just kind of in, mm-hmm. it's like dead space, you know, dead air, mm-hmm. even if they're like really nice scenes. But this was like, oh, no, we're already moving on to the next plot point. But on the way there, we're going to stop. And I really like that. Yeah, it's a really good lesson, yeah. actually, on, on our journey movie, putting putting the quiet down moments as we know exactly where we're going, we have a clear destination, a clear like short term goal. So we're not just like, yeah, feeling Waiting, yeah. the gap right. mm-hmm. between actual plot. Yeah. Very yeah. smart. Yeah. Cool. Well, what other lessons do you have for us, Brian? Uh, well, I've been thinking recently about movies that sort of either change in the middle or where they hide one movie in another movie. Um, and I think I talked very early about uh, my feelings on 28 Days Later versus Sunshine. Um, which Sunshine is the next movie written by Alex Garland and directed by Danny Boyle. Um, and uh, spoiler for for Sunshine, um, but I've always said that 20 Days Later is a monster movie that reveals itself to be kind of an existential drama about humanity and, and who people are and the choices we make and that kind of thing. And Sunshine starts out as a movie about people. Like, they're all in this ship together. They have to go to throw something into the sun to save the world and everything. And it's like, feels like this very like humanity drama. And then it turns into a monster movie. Um, and which I just found so disappointing, but I'd been re- wanting to rewatch it forever. So I rewatched it last night and I still pretty much feel that way. The movie doesn't tell you it's going to be anything super deep, but I just feel like the, there was so much room there to, to get really sort of the, for thematic conversation and everything. And it kind of just really doesn't bother. It's more just, we have to go fix this thing and do this. Um, and, and I, so I just find that it's like, my, my, I think my lesson is if you are going to hide a movie in your movie, make the, the second movie better than the first movie. Um, <laughs> right, uh, right. Because recently, you know, I think like, like fight clubs, a great example, even Friday, weirdly enough is a movie where by the end you're like, huh, I didn't expect to like actually care about things in this like stoner movie. Um, like there, there are movies that sort of, when they kind of give you a gut punch, you go, Ooh, this movie was doing something better than I thought it was going to, or more interesting than I thought it was going to. Um, and, you know, stay tuned for our Shyamalan conversation coming up later in this month. Um, but recently, I've also thought I mentioned uh, Last Night in Soho and Nope. We talked about where I just feel like there are definitely movies I've seen recently where the movie does a, a midpoint kind of gotcha moment. But then I'm just like, this movie isn't as good as the movie that you were telling me I was getting into. Um, mm-hmm. And what I love about 28 Days Later is that I get the like fun zombie movie. But then by the end of it, I'm like, ooh, good job. You made me actually think about things and you made me like have some feelings. And uh, and, and I, I like that the the movie nestled inside, <laughs> like hidden inside 28 Days Later is a better movie than I thought I was getting into. And I find it really unfortunate when movies do the opposite. So don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> good lesson. Yeah. yeah. Good, clear lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, that is when I reengaged with the movie. And yeah, if, if you're doing it well, you can use the context, obviously, of everything that you've been setting up to add extra meaning to whatever that second half of things is. And I think that's uh, that's cool. I want more movies to to do that well. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk. What's about your lesson, Michael? It's going to be great. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I'll just like bold aesthetic choices, like as frustrated as I was and am with the choices, 
I have this begrudging like respect and gratitude for it also. Like I'm happy that someone did this and committed and pushed this medium of prosumer digital video as far as it can go (laughs) and use it for an interesting purpose. Like, I think even if it doesn't work for me, I think it is a cool choice for this story to add the texture to make it aesthetically evocative of the uh, world that you are creating. And so, yeah, I'm happy that this happened. I think it's a reminder of me to you know be experimental and and play and and try out new things and don't just go with the things that have been time honored and proven for hundreds of years uh try new things <laughs> sometimes like michael's having a conversation with the with yeah. stuff right now <laughs> Something, something's happening yeah in act three though they switch back to film and i was like why did you do that like after all anyway <clears throat> I love no. I that was like a little coda. I mean, yeah, I like cool. I yeah. get it, but it was just an like act three. Yeah. yeah, not act three. Right. It was a coda, but anyway. I feel like I feel like it was like life after. Yeah. Now right. opens up again and is film quality. And by the <laughs> way, I love I love the just the almost like Lynchian dream like flash of like hell and like the upside down landscape mm. as before he wakes up and then the reveal that that's actually like part of their sign they're making right. that says hello. Um. I thought that there's there was a really interesting transition there into the not digital camera mode where it almost at first feels like an afterlife or like where are we what's happening and then you see that yeah Danny Boyle it's, loves it's his a happy ending Danny Boyle loves his weird little flashes that are like very jarring out of context then you get the context later Sunshine does the same thing and and I feel mm, like it's yeah it's it's yeah, a really yeah. interesting choice also between this and train spotting I could just do without. Just no more dead babies, please. Yeah, like, right. I think I don't need that. Yeah. No, thank you. Thanks, Danny Boyle. It's great. <laughs> what else have you guys been watching? <laughs> Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Um, so I started watching the movie Blonde, and uh, then I stopped watching it because I realized it was not for me. And, uh, but before, uh, actually even before I started watching Blonde, I had happened to see uh, the movie Niagara from 1953, which Mm. is a Marilyn Monroe movie, Mm. um, that is then like referenced and shown parts of in the movie blonde, uh, with Ana de Armas, you know, like recreating scenes from Niagara. And I had actually just seen Niagara. Um, and you know, I really liked it. So that's the movie I'm going to talk about. Uh, Niagara, 1953, it's Marilyn Monroe, Joseph Cotton, Gene Peters, and Max Showalter and, uh, directed by Henry Hathaway. And it's like a crime drama. Um, they, it's about these two couples that happen to be staying in Niagara Falls, like, or like at Niagara Falls. One couple's on their honeymoon and the other couple, uh, their marriage is on the rocks. Uh, Marilyn Monroe and her husband, their, their marriage is on the rocks. Um, and it's, it's kind of about like, just like sort of a psychological study on these two couples and the way that like everything unfolds, there's an, a murder that happens. Um, and I don't want to give too much away because Marilyn Monroe is so good in it is mm. thing number one. 
And thing number two is there is a plot twist in the middle that knocked me over that I just did not see coming, probably because I wasn't looking for it. So maybe me telling you that there's a twist means you'll see it immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, So sorry, I guess. But I don't know. I just I really wasn't looking for a twist. And then it happened. And I was like, oh, my God, really cool. Like and the movie that it turned into uh, was very different um, than the one that I thought it was. But better. Well, yes, in some ways, no in others. Okay. Well, no, a lateral shift at the very least then. Right. Okay, now, it, that's fine. It, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I thought it was fascinating. They shot a ton of it on location in Niagara Falls. Like you and they really get the most out of that location. Like there are so many scenes at and around Niagara Falls um, in the movie. And it is very impressive. Uh, the way that a lot of that looks and stuff. And Marilyn Monroe is sensational. Um, so strongly recommend that if you want some Marilyn Monroe in your life and not other <laughs> yeah, movies not, about not her. Other yeah. movies. <laughs> nice. Okay, cool. Alex, what have you been watching? So I rewatched uh, my favorite Terrence Malick movie, which is The New World, uh, because nice. I'm going on a podcast called Underrated oh, nice. and uh, to talk about it uh, because I think... Uh, the New World kind of goes under the radar of Terrence Malick's, I guess, you know, body of work. I think people know him more for some of his early movies like Badlands or Days of Heaven or kind of his more recent work like uh, Tree of Life. But my favorite period of Malick is actually kind of his like comeback moment in like the late 90s and early 2000s where it was like he was gone for like 20 years or more. And now he's suddenly back making the thin red line and then just like a few years later making uh, the new world. And I feel like that moment of Malick is my favorite balance of he's making a big studio movie, a big historical epic. He's still 100 percent himself, like undeniably doing his Malick thing. And yet I can watch this as a movie and not just as like a Malick tone poem only. And and the new world, I think, is like the ultimate balance of that, because the studio uh, you know, constraints, I think, are good for a director like Malick. And the studio, after he did an initial uh, festival cut of the new world, uh, asked him to cut it down further. So my favorite cut is actually the studio enforced theatrical cut, which is like you get all the Malick poetry with the least amount of indulgence and there's like actually like dynamics to the story and like things move forward and we don't like linger in any any one place too long and i think it's it's a really lovely just yeah for me it's the perfect marriage of some studio constraints but malik being a hundred percent malik so i'm i'm very excited to talk about the new world because i feel like we're probably never going to talk about it on this podcast but i i would like to discuss this whole malik thing and why i wish Malik would be forced to make more movies like the new world <laughs> because I would like them. We should do a Malik at some point. We will. She said confidently. <laughs> yeah. as, as Michael, Mike, as Michael makes a face. Brian, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching recently? Uh, I went and saw Moon Age Daydream, the new documentary about David Bowie, which I think was the, the first documentary that the Bowie estate has actually sanctioned. Um, there are plenty out there. Um, and it's by Brett Morgan, who I actually mentioned uh, a couple months ago, because he also did Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, uh, which I had mentioned is my What Am I Watching some time ago. And the Kurt Cobain documentary, I mentioned it's sort of like it feels kind of like a music video. It feels like you're almost watching like a like a long Nirvana music video, but there's still, it'll cut to an interview with 
a family member or something like that, right? Moon Age Daydream is there is zero narration or any or like text on screen to explain anything. It the entire movie is carried by a combination of clips and then uh, I mean visual clips and then audio of Bowie in various interviews talking about how he is feeling at that time and how he's sort of identifying at that time and things, um, which is surprising at first. You're like, oh, okay, this movie is just going to be this. But then the really cool thing is by partway into it, you're like, oh, no, there's a chronology going on here. There's actually kind of a character arc where the different they're showing sort of like how Bowie is feeling at different points in his life and how he kind of feels like he never wants to do this. But then 10 years later, he like switches. Um, and uh, so it feels like there's a surprising amount of structure and like movie documentary things going on, even though there's never like, and then he released scary monsters and then it went platinum or whatever, like that never does anything like that. Um, so I found it really compelling and, and really interesting to watch. Um, I think if you are, if you know nothing about David Bowie, like you're going to be probably confused during this, but if you, if you have at least a casual knowledge of, of, you know, his discography and his music and stuff, I think that it is, you know, it's a movie that makes you sit forward and kind of piece together what's going on on your own. Um, but I feel like it's also it also makes it that much more rewarding than a movie that is just like, here's here's another average documentary where we're going to come on and kind of explain everything to you and, and stuff. So I found it really cool, but it's also something that like it's it's for a certain audience. So don't go in expecting to be like, once it's over, you're going to be able to, if someone says, tell me about David Bowie, you'd be like, well, I can tell you how he dressed and some things he said <laughs> once in a while. Um, right. but, uh, but yeah, I had, a, I had a great time watching it. Nice. Well, so I'm going to do that thing where I talk about a podcast for my, what, what I'm watching. Uh, there's a new season of Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. So, you know, <laughs> I have to talk about it. Um, but there are two episodes that I want to quickly call out. And so what I love about this podcast, and I nerd out about it with our producer, Vince Major, who's also a big fan, is it is very good at shaking up our preconceived notions of, well, of course things should happen this way. Let's do a case study that shows that maybe the obvious intuitive way to do a thing is perhaps not the best way. And there are two episodes so far that have stuck out to me this season. One is called Outliers Revisited, where Malcolm Gladwell revisits a chapter from uh, potentially his biggest book from 2008 called Outliers that was all about um, how small advantages early in someone's life can kind of snowball into full-fledged privilege later on. And so specifically this episode looks at the chapter where he looked at Canadian hockey players and professional league. And the greatest predictor of skill is what month you were born in because people that were born such that they were the oldest when trying out for teams mm. meant that you just had more life lived. So you were older and more experienced. And so you were flagged as being better than the younger people. And so every year coaches are just, really picking the oldest players, not necessarily the best players for whatever age they're at. And so by the time they get to the professional league, all of them have birthdays basically within the first half of the year. And there's almost no people like born in December, for example. And so he 20, 30 years later, I think it's 40 years after that phenomenon was first uh, 
found. And 20 years after he popularized it, he goes to the University of Pennsylvania to do an experiment on the graduating class of Ivy League fancy people uh, to see have things changed? Is it true for other places? And it's a really interesting look at uh, kind of breaking down our ideas of personal success and privilege and looking at what what really makes us special, uh, which I really like. And then there's another episode called When Will Met Grace, which is all about the TV show Will and Grace and is about bigger picture. Is the way we're creating content today siloing us in a similar way that like Facebook ends up putting us in a bubble where all we see is the stuff that we already agree with uh, has the TV streaming market kind of inadvertently done the same thing. And so it's this kind of case study looking at one of the creators of Will and Grace and then also his sister who created Orange is the New Black and how both of those shows took very different trajectories, one being broadcast on NBC Thursday night to millions of people and had to be tailored for a general audience, the other being on Netflix, being allowed to be as shocking and authentic as it could possibly be. What are the pros and cons of those of different approaches to creating content and where that content lives? So I found both of them really interesting. And like all of his best episodes, they're definitely commenting on today's culture and society in a way that's a little subversive and probably makes people upset, but in a way that I find mostly thought provoking. So hmm. latest season of Revisionist History, I recommend uh, Outliers Visited and When Will Met Grace. Nice. Yep. All right. Well, this has been our conversation about 28 Days Later. Uh, thank you to everyone that joined us for the live recording. The, the chat has been fun to keep one eye on. Uh, so thank you everyone for joining and having a, a fun conversation over there. Thank you to the rest of our patrons that make this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes and get fun perks like access to our live recording or voting on monthly patron exclusives, access to those exclusives like our village episode that will be coming soon, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode for The Sixth Sense. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.